The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this evening, the opportunity we have to be together, to study. Pray that your spirit would be with all of us, O Lord, as we uh, have a Q&A format and as we walk through the text. Pray that you would lead, uh, lead us and guide us. Help us to understand sanctification, understand how we can grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, and specifically the role of the law in the Christian life. Help us to understand that as well in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue moving through Romans 7, um, uh, 1 through 12. Would love somebody to read that text for us. Uh, that's our focus tonight, Romans 7, 1 through 12. All right, good. Thank you. So we're zeroing in now on the role of the law, the, uh, the function and the limits of the law in the Christian life. Again, Romans 6 through 8, three chapters on sanctification. Uh, sanctification is the uh, process of our salvation. After justification, we come to faith in Christ. Sins are forgiven. Um, what then uh, do we do then? How do we grow in grace and knowledge of Christ? Uh, Romans 6 through 8 uh, talks about sanctification. Romans 6, a fundamental chapter that we've walked through. Now we're in Romans 7, and we're looking at the issue of the law. And I think the basic concept here in Romans 7 is the law cannot sanctify. The law cannot sanctify. The Christian's relationship with the law, it is as impossible to be sanctified by law as it is to be justified by law. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Effectively, Romans 7, I think, is saying, By works of the law no human being will be sanctified either. So we cannot be sanctified by the law. So last week I gave you a three-part outline of Romans 7. Romans 7, 1 through 6, a Christian's relationship to the law, dead to the law, married to Christ, and bearing fruit for God. The key verse is Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So he uses a marriage analogy. We'll walk through it again a little bit tonight. And uh, that marriage analogy says, uh, in order to be set free from the binding relationship we have to the law, we had to die. Uh, and in d dying, united with Christ, uh, we have been set free from the law, and now we have a new relationship with God through Christ, similar to a marriage relationship by which we can bear fruit to God. Part two is vindication of the law, Romans 7, 7 through 12. Paul has to vindicate the law because it seems like he's being negative toward the law. There is nothing wrong with the law. He will tell us in verse 12, it is holy and righteous and good. All right? That's uh, not why we do not bear fruit for God. The problem is with us. And then the last part of Romans 7, which we'll not get to tonight, is Romans 7, 13 to 25. Paul's experience with indwelling sin is proof that we cannot, that law cannot sanctify a Christian. All right, so let's look again at that first part that we started looking at last week, and that is this uh, analogy of marriage. And the, the issue is uh, the Christian's relationship to the law. So this is a different translation. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, 
she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. Key verse. So, uh, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit uh, to God. For when we were controlled by the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old, old way of the written uh, code. So we got part one of the marriage analogy. Only by death can we be released from it. Paul's basic point is a covenant is binding only as long as we live. Once we die, the covenant is no longer binding. So that's that marriage covenant, to death, till death do you part. We cannot just walk away from the law. Uh, we can't just say, I'm done with that, I'm going to do it another way. The law was binding. The law was authoritative over us. It had rights, uh, had, had rights over us uh, to make demands on us. Through our spiritual union with Christ, however, we died once for all to this binding nature of the law. That's the negative aspect, dead to the law. Now, uh, in a right relationship with Christ, with God, we can bear fruit for God, that idea of bearing fruit. Our spiritual union with Christ is like a new marriage. The old, is, old one is done, the new one has begun. That old marriage, the law could never bear good fruit for God because of our flesh, our sin nature. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But through spiritual union with Christ, we've been set free from that old marriage, so to speak, so that we can now bear fruit for God in the new way of the Spirit. So now, let's focus uh, on Romans 7, 4 through 6, uh, which we just read a moment ago. Verse 4 is the key to the chapter. The backdrop is union with Christ. What does that mean, by the way? Union with Christ. We saw it first in Romans 6, 1 through 4. What does that mean? been over this a number of weeks. What does that mean that we are uh, united with Christ? Okay, that's definitely true. By the way, guys, I want you to know the handout you have, it's mostly questions. It's discussion questions, all right? So got to get ramped up here, all right? It's daylight saving now. It's light out, you know. Got to be perky here, okay? A lot of discussion questions coming, all right? More on this, spiritual union with Christ. Maybe it would help if somebody read Romans 6, 1 through 4. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That's the backdrop, all right? Uh, the moment you come to faith in Christ, you were baptized by the Spirit into union with Christ. You, were, you died with Christ, a decisive death. And we walked through all that in Romans 6. You also were made alive with Christ. But now Paul's taking that same kind of idea and moving it over to this marriage analogy. The only way to get out of this covenant is, is by death. And I know that it's a little complex, and we talked about this last time. It could even seem a little convoluted. All right, are we the woman in this analogy? Uh, all right, if we're the woman in the analogy, a woman is bound to her husband only as long as her husband's alive. The only way to be set free from that is what? If the, if the husband died, if you died, are you set free? Yes, but you can't remarry, all right? I hope you realize that, all right? You are dead, all right? So we started as the woman in the analogy. The one we're married to is the law, I guess. But I'm telling you right now, the law isn't going anywhere. The law isn't going to die. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. 
but not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. The jot or tittle will still be there to the end of history. That, the law is not dying. But the idea here is that's the only way for this covenant with the, with the law to end. Someone has to die. Uh, the reason he uses the marriage analogy is what? Why does he pick up this marriage analogy? What's he getting at? As complex as it is, why does he choose marriage uh, to teach us about our Christian life? The idea is bearing fruit, all right? Marriage, uh, the purpose of marriage is to bear fruit uh, from Genesis chapter one. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So he's giving us an idea of bearing fruit. And where does this, uh, this come from? From the end of Romans six, he said, what fruit came from your old life in sin? Those things end in death. I'm sorry, go ahead. Death came from that, all right? For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So that's the idea. And he gets to that again in 7.6 here. By now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the old way or a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Also verse 5. Nothing came from that union uh, but death, fruit for death. Okay? Uh, So what fruit for God do you think Paul has in mind here in verse 5 and also in verse 6? What is the fruit that we bear now that we have been united with Christ or have this new spiritual marriage to Christ? Sorry? All right, fruit of the Spirit would be a clear example of that. Go ahead. Um, So those are demeanors or attitudes within us. Uh, Any good work that you do that's been commanded by God, the Ephesians 2.10, good work, Good works. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works. Go ahead, Jorgensen. Okay, so leading other people to Christ is fruit. Um, you know, obviously, uh, any, any good work that we do, giving money to the poor and needy is fruit, uh, praying, interceding for others is fruit. Anything God commands you to do in, in the New Testament, uh, in the epistles, and you do it by, all that's fruit, all of it. So uh, that's what he means by fruit. Now let's look, uh, zero in at at verse five and six. So fundamentally, we uh, died to the law through the body of Christ so that we might belong to another. And we need to try to understand what that means, died to the law and what it doesn't mean. So verse five and six, he expands on it. While we were living, and I'm gonna translate it, uh, NIV uses a different uh, translation. I'm gonna zero in this, this phrase, in the flesh. While we were living in the flesh, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So the key term here is in the flesh. What does that mean in the flesh? By the way, this is the first use of the word flesh like this in the book of Romans. And it's gonna be a very important term going forward. So let's try to understand what the flesh is. The Bible uses the word flesh in a number of ways. For example, flesh in the KJV just frequently just translates uh, flesh this way. More, the modern translations sometimes give us different translations. So let's stay, stick with the KJV. Flesh can mean human beings, just the human race. Um, for example, Isaiah 40, 5 through 8. Can someone read that right off your handout because that's in the KJV? All right, so what does the word flesh mean there in Isaiah 40, uh, 5 through 8? Flesh. All flesh is grass. Um, or, you know, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh together will see it. So that's mankind or humanity, the human race, called flesh, all flesh. So that's one use of the word flesh. 
Secondly, the uh, word flesh can mean just physical body, like living cells together. Like you could imagine muscles, sinew, you know, even blood vessels, all that, just the physicality of our bodies. Probably the most famous use of this word uh, flesh is in, in uh, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. All right, what does that mean? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay, so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human body. He took on an actual physical flesh and blood body. That's what the word flesh means there. Again, Ezekiel 37, seven and eight. You know I had to get some Ezekiel in here tonight. Um, someone wanna read that, Ezekiel 37, seven and eight. Okay, so this is the Valley of Dry Bones, and, and so um, as Ezekiel is told in the vision to prophesy, the bones assemble and then flesh comes on. That's the same use of the word flesh as in John 1.14. I think the word became flesh. And again, uh, after the resurrection, significantly, Jesus said to his disciples who were thinking that he was a ghost, remember that? They thought he was a ghost. Uh, he said, behold, my hands and my feet uh, feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see I have. So it's the same use of the word flesh there. Jesus has a physical body after his resurrection. That's the whole point of the resurrection. And then uh, Paul uses it just in terms of himself. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The word in the flesh there means just this physical life I'm living now as a human being. Uh, that's what the word flesh means. Second use of the word flesh. Third use of the word flesh is uh, perhaps a little subtle compared to verse four, but I think there is a difference we can, or not verse um, uh, number four in, in our list here. The flesh uh, can also be the sensual drives of the body uh, generally called the lusts of the flesh. So that, that's, uh, I think we can make a distinction between that and number four, but we have a, a sense of this in 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Again, 2 Peter 2, 18. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. That's talking about false teachers who appeal to sensual drives, sensual desires. So this would be the drives of the body, the, the lusts or the, the desires that come in the sensual sort of sense. The word flesh is used that way. And then finally now we have the way it's used in Romans uh, seven and eight and also in other places. And this is, uh, I don't think it's any of these, the ones that, were, that I've just described. It's something else, the way that Paul uses the word flesh in Romans seven and eight. It's a spiritual realm uh, where he uses the phrase to be in the flesh and it's directly contrasted with being in the spirit. You are either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. It's like a spiritual domain. It's like being in Satan's kingdom, etc. It's different ways of saying unregenerate. To, to be unregenerate is to be in the flesh. He's going to develop this much more fully in Romans chapter eight. So Romans eight, one through 14, is a description of what it means to be in the flesh. Now we're not jumping ahead to study that, but let's just look at it. Romans eight, one fourteen, and I'll read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from uh, free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that, in, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's the key statement, Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You see that? So that's what I'm saying. Every single human being on earth is in one of those two categories. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Putting it simply, you're either a non-Christian or a Christian. You're either unregenerate or regenerate. You're either not born again, that is dead in your transgressions and sins, or you are born again and alive. But Paul here is using that, that expression, in the flesh or in the spirit. The NIV uh, unhelpfully translates it, controlled by the sinful nature. Um, and that's more behavioral. This doesn't strike me as behavioral. This actually is telling you positionally where you are. If you are a Christian, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. It's the same kind of thing he taught in Romans 6. It's a decisive move from one realm or kingdom to another. But he's just using this in the flesh or in the spirit language. Um, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if, in, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you are in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Okay? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So all Christians have the Spirit and therefore are in the Spirit. Does that make sense? doesn't mean we're all controlled by the Spirit at every moment. That's not true. But it does mean we are decisively in the realm of the Holy Spirit. We're in the Spirit, not in the flesh. All right? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So I think Romans 8, 9 says especially very clearly that there's one of two realms you're in. You're either in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. There's much more in Romans 8, 1 through 14 we can talk about, but not tonight. So just looking at that then, what do you learn? What does it mean to be in the flesh? And what does it mean to be in the Spirit? Okay, Whether you're submitting to God or you're not, and in Romans 8 and 6 and 7, um, you know, it has to do with a mindset, the way you think. There's a mind of the flesh uh, versus a mind of the spirit. Uh, verse 7, it says the mind of the flesh, 8, 7, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. What does that mean? Hostile to God. Yeah, opposed, hating, hating God, hating the things of God. That's, that's the characteristic aspect of being in the flesh. Your mind hates God and hates the things of God. 
okay? But if you're in the spirit, you love God and the things of God, etc. That's That's uh, the, the difference, etc. Um, so how is the flesh displayed both in the mind and in the actions of the body? In the mind, but also in the actions of the body, to be in the flesh. You can sin with your mind and not even move the body. And this is very important because I tell you what, the Pharisees and and you know just the, the Jewish legalists of those days thought that sin was something you did with your body, right? Only with your body. So if you have never murdered anyone, you haven't sinned in that area. That whole category of the Ten Commandments, you're fine there. And you think you're blameless in that category. Jesus said, no, you could be killing somebody in your mind, in your heart, right? And you're guilty of murder even though you didn't commit the act. Same thing with adultery. He makes this very plain, right? So you can sin with your mind even if you don't act on it with your body. But it is both. It's both the mind and its inner nature, but also the actions of the body. It's always going to come out in some way. So it's both the mind and the body. And so Romans 8, 1 through 14 gives some key insight into Romans uh, 7, 5, and 6, um, which we're, we're studying now. Now, Paul says when someone is in the flesh, all the law does, so go back to Romans 7 and it's in the handout too, all that the law does is stimulate sinful passions resulting in sinful actions. Look again at Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So there's that image of bearing fruit. So here's the question. What does this mean, sinful passions? And how are they aroused by the law? What are sinful passions and how are they aroused by the law? Okay, that's selfishness. Stephanie, you're going to say something? Okay, so it all starts with desire. Passion would be desire, sometimes translated lust. They're desires. You've got them inside you. They're in there. And then part two of the question, what, what does the law do with that? How does, how, according to Romans 7, 5, what happens when the law comes to the person who's in the flesh? Okay, we bore fruit for death. And before that, the link is, and James says about the same thing, you got these sinful passions, the law comes in and, and, and arouses them, stimulates these sinful passions, resulting, as Jim says, in fruit for death. Now, uh, what is the significance of the phrase, at work? For when we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What does that mean, at work in our members, in Romans 7.5? How do sinful passions work in the members of the body bearing fruit for death? The sinful passions are energetic. They're catalytic. They're at work in you. They're not laying quiet, whatever. They're doing, doing stuff. I remember a number of years ago, I had been putting off um, working on the roof of my shed. And you know what happens when water and wood meet and the water's allowed to sit there for a long time, like under some shingles and all that, you know what I'm talking about? And it was when I finally had the courage to kind of pry some of that wood off and look at what was really happening in there and saw a lot of rot and, you know, whatever. I came up with the phrase, I said, water is a patient destroyer, all right? It actually, the wood actually looked like it had been burned. 
it looked like fire. It looked like, you know, if you'd thrown in the fire, the ashes that were left, it was crumbly. It was almost like styrofoam. Um, the water had just destroyed the integrity of a lot of those two by fours and stuff. I had to remove them. So there's this, it's just a patient destroyer. It's at work. It's at work. Jim, I think you see this in people's teeth, don't you? Sometimes, you know? <laughs> just that decay is at work. It's energetic. It's not going to stay put. So thank you for your care for my teeth. I appreciate that. I don't want to give you guys some TMI, but there might have been some of that going on in some of my teeth. But thanks, Jim. It's uh, been arrested. Thank you. Um, the point is, it's, it's at work. Those passions are working on you. They're energetic. They're producing an effect. We get the same concept, this work concept, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Someone read that off the handout, if you would. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Well, there's so much corroborating evidence in those verses. There's a lot of similarities there. But I'm zeroing in on the phrase, the spirit that is now at work. The prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 is who? That's Satan. Satan controls a spirit, lowercase, that's active, energetic in this world. It's a spirit of sin, a spirit of defiance. It's the same kind of passions that we're talking about. A spirit that's energetic, working disobedience in those who are spiritually dead. This working, this energetic working, combines with the internal passions of the flesh, resulting in desires of the body and of the mind. Okay? In the body and of the mind that are then carried out in specific evil actions. Amazingly, in Romans 7, 5, Paul says the law of God actually stirs up these sinful passions and fans them into a flame, resulting in actual sins, similar, amazingly, to the work of Satan in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which is surprising. Now, Romans 7, 7 through 11 is a picture of this exact process in Paul's life. He talks about it. He gives a case study. All right, and we'll get to that in a minute. Now, someone once said the law produces either the white devil of spiritual pride in the generally compliant or the black devil of rebellion among those that are generally immoral. Why are each of these responses so deadly? What do I mean by the white devil of spiritual pride and the black devil of rebellion? Okay, what would be examples from the Bible of this kind of spiritual pride? What's that? Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs, look good on the outside, inside full of all kinds of corruption. Okay, what else? But he looked beautiful, you know, still does. He disguised himself as an angel of light. If he would appear, he wouldn't appear hideous and gross. He would appear alluring and attractive. That's what he is. Uh, but he's corrupt inside. That's a good example. Uh, Pharisee, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. All right, what's the attitude of the Pharisees he prayed? Remember? So he's very proud. How about the rich young ruler? What was he like? How would you characterize him? Very confident. Oh, how do we see that? Jesus gives him the law, and what does he say? I've kept these, all of these from, from childhood, so I'm good. So he has that, that kind of confidence, that sense that I've kept, I've kept the law. Uh, Paul himself, before his conversion, wouldn't you say that? If you look at, at, uh, at, at concerning the law, uh, outward righteousness, blameless called himself that. That's, you know, but now he realized it's dung. So he's got all of these are examples of this kind of spiritual pride where you actually think you're keeping the law, but you're not. Um, but then there's others that just throw it off. Go ahead. Um, right. 
Yeah, so you're quoting Romans 10, 5, is that right? Something like that. I think he says they, they sought to establish their own righteousness and did not, and the key word is submit to God's righteousness. To submit is to admit you need it, to admit you need a savior, you need Jesus, and you need him to die for you, and your righteousness isn't, isn't enough, for sure. All right, so how do these attitudes, how does all this, the sinful passions aroused, stimulated by the law, how do they bear fruit for death? How do we see that on, in either way, whether the Pharisee who thinks he's righteous, how, does he, how is he bearing fruit for death? And then the, uh, the prostitute uh, who's, or the tax collectors and sinners, remember that category, always the sinners. Those are the people that just knew that there was no chance for them. They just threw off restraint. Tax collectors would have orgies. They'd get drunk. They just didn't care. So that's, you got both sides. How is that bearing fruit? How do we see that as bearing fruit for death? Yeah, and it's being dead in your transgressions and sins even while you live as you follow the ways of this world and the lusts of the, of the mind and of the body. It's mind, so pride, I would say, is a big part of that, where you're proud, not just spiritually proud, but just proud of your achievements, proud of your intelligence, proud of, you know, you boast about yourself, that kind of, it's just that pride that we see. And we talked about, you know, in Mark's gospel where they were arguing about which of them was the greatest, um, so that's fruit for death, that kind of thing, a mental attitude. Uh, but then there's those actions, uh, fruit for death. And the death is, I think, as Jim alluded to, it's not just death, spiritual death here in this life, but it's the eternal death that's coming in Revelation 20, verse 6, the second death, which is hell, um, you know, eternal death and hell. All of that bears fruit for eternal death. All right, so that's negatively. 7.5 is negative. By contrast, positively, Romans 7, 6 speaks of the new way of the Spirit. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, what is the significance of verses six, verse six beginning with the words, but now? What do you get out of that phrase, but now? So the moment that you come to faith in Christ, now that you are united with Jesus in his death, you have died to what once bound you. You've, you've been set free from the law and its condemning power. You've died to the law. And now you're set free to serve, it says, in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So this that decisive change. Now this is gonna be the key to my interpretation and others of Romans 7, the second half of the chapter. Is Paul speaking as a Christian or a non-Christian? There seems to have been a decisive change in that man and Paul's relationship to sin. Something, there's a but now aspect. What could it be other than conversion? What could it be other than we're new creations in Christ? But you get it here in 7.6, do you see it? But now that this has happened, this decisive moment, but now we have been united with Christ in his death, we have been released from that which held us captive. All right, what does it mean then to be released from the law, similar to what does it mean to be dead to the law? How did it hold us captive? All right, so what does it mean to be released from the law in that it was holding us captive? And all you were doing then, according to Romans 2, is storing up wrath against yourself. Day after day after day, in that bad marriage that he's using by analogy here, all you were doing is bearing fruit for death. That's all you were doing every day. If you're the self-righteous Pharisee that says, thank, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people, all you were doing was storing up wrath. You didn't know it, but that's what you were doing. God was angry every day at those people because of their prideful rebellion against him. 
And he was angry at the tax collectors and prostitutes too because they were flouting his law, disregarding it, and throwing off all restraint. And they were storing up wrath as well. So fundamentally, that's where they were. But now that Christ has come, whether a tax collector, a Pharisee, prostitute comes to genuine faith in Christ, there's this decisive change now. And that person has been set free from captivity to the law and its condemning, accusing power set free from that. Now you've got a new situation and that you can bear, uh, you can serve. Now what does that mean we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code? First of all, let's take the word serve. How is that significant? We serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Absolutely, We're ser- you're gonna serve one master or another. Um, going back to 7.4, um, just the last phrase, in order that we might bear fruit for God. We've been talking about that. This new marriage enables us to bear fruit for God. Would you not agree that all of the fruit you bear for God, all of the good fruit you bear for God is a pattern of service? You're doing it as as a service. You're serving God. So Paul uses that word. We're serving now, serving in the new way of the Spirit. He says, not in the old way of the written code. Now, what is that? What does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code? That's a very important kind of distinction here. How would you characterize serving in the new way of the Spirit versus old way? Okay, out of desperation, okay? You're under guilt all the time, under fear, all right? More on this, either side, what is it it like to to, uh, serve in the old way of the written code? We were serving sin and, Christ, and, and not, not Christ, all right? Um, yeah, there's a lot we could say about this. So uh, I gave you a test case here, all right? Because I was thinking about this. What does it mean? All right, what does it mean that we're dead to the law? So I took an example, all right? Um, kind of a non-controversial one, I would hope. You shall not steal. You know, I don't think there's any group in America working on overturning that right now. So let's just stick with that one. We're kind of good. <laughs> good with that. We're going to maintain property rights, okay? We're going to maintain this basic, you shall not steal. We're all in agreement on this. Stealing's bad, all right? We're not going to steal. All right, let's, let's talk about the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the code. All right, Ten Commandments says, you shall not steal. You all agree. You're all nodding, so we're good on that. Ten Commandments says that. Would you say that the new covenant, covenant says, you may now steal anytime you like? Is that what you get out of being no, dead to the law? I can now steal whenever I want. All right, well, apparently that's still binding on us. So we're still gonna not steal. How is it that we are going to fulfill the command, the prohibition, you shall not steal, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code? That's what I meditated on this afternoon. I was trying to understand it. I asked the guys this at staff meeting on Monday, and they were totally perplexed and had no answer for me, so I was left on my own. I'm kidding. Uh, Andy, Andy's like, thanks. I'm throwing them all under the bus. They'll get me back. Anyway, no, no. Uh, clearly, Paul doubles down on it, and it actually, he may give us some indications on what it means to fulfill the prohibition against stealing in the new way of the Spirit. So I'm going to read Ephesians 4.28. So clearly, Paul's not saying you may steal as much as you like. That is not true. So let me ask a question. How does someone in the flesh approach the prohibition, you shall not steal? All right, so he wants to steal, but he's restrained 
because of what? What would restrain him from stealing? Consequences. The law, you know, what will come to him if he does. That's what's, but in, inside, he stole. What would, you, what would you say, what would you call it if somebody basically has stolen somebody else's possession but doesn't go through with it? What would you call that? Stealing in the heart has a name, yeah, coveting, which is why Paul actually goes to that. It's a key sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But basically, there is such a thing as stealing in the heart. It's just got another name. It's called coveting, but it's still a sin. So the, the old way of the code is, man, I would steal if I could get away with it. All right? The new way of the Spirit approaches every aspect of this issue differently. All right, so let's, it broadens the mind and you start saying, what's involved in the prohibition? You shall not steal. All right, so this is how I wrote it. It said, the new way of the spirit involves an inner transformation of the heart, new thoughts toward God, self, possessions, and other people. So those are four key areas, right? Let, I'm gonna understand God vertically in this issue of you shall not steal. I'm going to think about myself in relation to God uh, differently. I'm going to think about possessions and other people. Everything's been transformed here. I'm coming at this thing a whole different way now. All right, remember the law. All the law can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those laws are now written in your heart you are actually transformed so that you do love God and you do love neighbor as yourself, all right? So the result of that is a transformed thinking and transformed affection. Instead of thinking carnally about God, self, possessions, and others, you think in the new way of the Spirit. Everything now is God-centered all the time. The Christian sees possessions, both his own and those of others, as ultimately belonging to God because he made them. Everything is God's. And then secondly, they are wisely distributed according to his purposes. Any possession should be used to serve the purposes of God and to bless others. Stealing is abhorrent and repulsive in and of itself. Even if I could get away with it, I hate it because God hates it. You see, it's a different way of thinking about everything. Serving is what possessions are for. So we're serving in the new way of the Spirit. And so now the former thief doesn't think, how can I get away with coming you know, as a burglar at night or sometime when no one's looking, grabbing something. I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking, how can I bless this person? What can I do in the realm of possessions that will bless this person? So I'm gonna work hard with my hands so I can have surplus that I might not need for my own that I can then share with another person. It's a whole different way of fulfilling, you shall not steal. You see, it's a just different, a different thing. Uh, so the old way of the written code is external regulations that are seen to be annoying and a burden. And the only motivation for obedience is fear of punishment. That's the old way of the written code. The new way of the spirit is an internally written law engraved in the heart, seen to be delightful and wise, Motivation to obey is love for God and for others. Can someone read these uh, two verses from Psalm 119? Isn't that beautiful? I love your law. I love your law. 
I meditated on it all day long. I love the fact that you said you shall not steal. That's delightful to me, beautiful. It's not a burden, it's beautiful. And, and now that you have set my heart free, I run in the path of your commands. Now, I want to ask you guys the question that I asked the staff on Monday. Those Psalms are written in the Old Testament. Did Old Testament believers serve in the old way of the Spirit, old way of the written code, or in the new way of the Spirit? I don't have the answer to that one. I'm just saying I'd like to live up to the psalmist in Psalm 119, but he's an Old Testament writer. How would you answer that? Okay, so there was genuine piety, genuine heart piety going on in the Old Testament. Wes, yeah, it's a how much more argument. You know, uh, Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, John says a new command I give, and then he backtracks on it a verse later and says, and yet it is not a new command, but an old one we've had from the beginning. So to some degree, you're taking the old commands that the Old Testament saints had, but we're in a whole new realm now, now that Christ has come, now that Jesus shed his blood for us, setting us free from penalty, and now that he's given us of his spirit to live within us, we're serving in a very different way. We're at a whole different level, even better than the psalmist when he was writing this. These might have just been words that David wrote saying, boy, I'd like to get to this point, but it could be that by the Spirit we're actually able to live out these words. It's, yeah, very, very good. All right, one last thing. I got this some years ago from a pastor that I was training under when I was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and it stuck with me, and now I'm going to kind of finish this meditation on what does it mean you shall not steal um, you shall not steal uh, serving in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. So you remember, the, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it begins with uh, a man traveling on the Jericho Road and uh, some highway robbers assault him, beat him up and leave him bleeding by the side of the road, steal from him and leave him by the side of the road. And then the priest comes by, sees him and walks by on the other side. The Levite comes by and sees him and walks by on the other side. But then the Samaritan comes, sees his need, binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an innkeeper and pays the innkeeper to take care of him and then says, when I come back, I'll pay for anything else that might be needed. It's a parable. And the whole thing is an illustration of the second great commandment to love your neighbors yourself. And a lawyer asked him challengingly, who is my neighbor? Basically, the implication of the lawyer there is I'd like to try to get out of this gig if I can. Well, you know, is there somebody I don't have to do this for? And so then Jesus tells the parable. All right, I remember that this preacher gave these kind of four, uh, four kind of actors or individuals in the drama, all right? And the attitude of the highway robber was, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine if I can take it from you. That's the attitude of the highway robber. The attitude of the priest and Levite is, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and we don't have anything to do with each other, all right? That's your concern. But I would add, there's a basic pride in the priest and Levite that they are not the highway robber, right? They didn't rob from that guy. So they walk by in righteousness from this guy bleeding by the side of the road. Moving on, the innkeeper is effectively saying, what's mine is yours for a price. If you pay me for it and we got a barter system going on here, I'll give you the food and whatever you need for a price. But then the Good Samaritan's attitude is what's mine is yours if you need it. And that is the, the way that you love your neighbors yourself. That's serving in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. All right, any final questions about that? You know, and, and that's a whole, it's a whole different mentality that a, a, a converted person has toward every aspect of the issue of should I steal or not. 
everything's been transformed. First of all, God watches all the time. He sees everything, and you're very aware of that. Secondly, my neighbor, the other person, will be hurt by this. They'll be damaged. I don't want to hurt my neighbor. Conversely, I actually want to help them. So the thief would work hard with their own hands so they have something to share. It's a whole different, whole different approach. By the way, my earliest memory in life is of me stealing bread from my parents. I was, at, I was a really little, little toddler. I was in the basement eating Wonder Bread. That's my earliest memory. <laughs> Second earliest is I stole fudgesicles. I ate one and saved the other under my pillow for the morning. My mother found the stick and the stain. <laughs> but I hadn't really worked out the physics of that yet. Um, at any rate. All right, let's go on and read seven, uh, 7 through 12. Someone read that because it's important to make the point that Paul just made. It's an illustration of the very point. All right, very good. So... This is an illustration. Paul's experience with the law is an illustration of Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. He said that the command, the prohibition, you shall not covet, produced covetousness in him. That's what he's saying here. So this is an illustration of the very principle that he's giving at. Why do you think Paul needs to, or feels the need to, address the question, is the law sin? Why does he feel the need to vindicate the law here? Because that's what he's doing, 7 to 12. Asks the, asks the question in verse 7 and decisively answers it in verse 12, ultimately. The law is holy and righteous and good. That whole section, then, is a vindication of the law, but it's more than that. There's more going on in there. But why does he feel the need to vindicate the law? But Wes, would we ever do that? Would we ever push back on God and say, if only you'd written a better law? Do you think we would ever do something like that? And blame the law and blame God for giving us not a very well-written law? Would we do something like that? Absolutely we would. <laughs> exactly, very good point. So yeah, we, we're always trying to evade responsibility. Also beyond that, these commandments are still there. Like the prohibition against stealing, they're still going to instruct us on what a good holy life is. We need the law. So he has to vindicate it. Also, he has been saying we're not going to be justified. We cannot be justified by the law. Romans 3.20 says no flesh is justified by the law. There seem to be almost disparaging statements. Furthermore, it gets almost kind of nasty a little bit in 7.5 where it says that the law comes in like Satan and seems to stimulate passions resulting in sin. So is the law sin like Satan is sin embodied? No, it's not. It's different now. There's nothing wrong with the law, even though it is acting similar to Satan in us. You see what I'm saying? So he's got to vindicate the law, and, he's, and he zeroes in on that. Uh, and I think that answers the question, why would uh, Paul uh, think, uh, someone would think Paul's saying the law is actually evil? How would you characterize Paul's response to the question, is the law sin? Well, how does he answer that? Okay, so why does he do that? This is, he does this a number of times. Why does he say, by no means? What does that tell you? Yeah, I did that once to a scale. I was in the process of losing weight, and I didn't like what the scale was telling me, so I stomped on it and broke our family scale. <laughs> I'm giving you all these bad stories about myself, but it wasn't the scale's fault. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think uh, he is emotional. He's saying, absolutely not. 
I mean, again, Psalm 119, the law is beautiful. The law is righteous. It is good. It is wonderful. So don't bring your mess to the law and say there's something wrong with the, with the law. There's nothing, by no means. All right, that's what he's saying. He's emotional about it, um, decisive. Now, what helpful, essential thing does Paul say that the law does in Romans 7? 7, 7, 7, in verse 7, verse 7, sorry. But why is that necessary, that we need to know what sin is in order to be saved? Okay, so what does that tell you about evangelism? What role does the law play in the proclamation of the good news? Is the law equal to the good news? Is the law good news? No. Is the law a necessary precursor enabling people to want the good news? You know the answer to that question. They will not be seeking the good news or even see it as good if you don't do the law work first. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The law comes and tells you you're sick. So if you're going to evangelize, you have to use the law. As I've said before, memorize a simple outline of the Ten Commandments and Jesus' statements on, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say X. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say. And then the two great commandments, the Ten and the Two, and Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments is all you need. It's all you'll need to convict everybody of sin. It's all you'll need. So it, we need that. We need to see our sin, and the law does that. All right, let's stop there. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, thank you for the evening that we've had tonight to walk through these beautiful verses and the things that we're learning uh, about the law and about ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I pray that you'd help us not to try to be sanctified by the flesh, but by the Spirit, that we realize that we delight now in your law the law is not a burden and that we can fulfill its precepts by the power of the Spirit, not to earn our forgiveness for past sins, not to earn our standing with you, but just because of delight in what it teaches. So help us to live that new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.